15 years ago, the uh, Barna Group surveyed American adults about which immoral acts they had committed in the previous week. And uh, here are some of those results. 20% had viewed pornography, 12% gossiped, 12% got drunk, and 10% had sexual intercourse with someone they weren't married to. Now, that's 15 years ago. I don't think the numbers have gotten any lower. And I mention that because all of those behaviors are in this biblical account we read this morning. I warned you a couple of weeks ago. So, so somebody gets drunk, gets naked, something sexual happens, and somebody gossips about it. We're studying through Genesis, and I've called this section Debris Field because we're dealing with the aftermath of the Great Flood, the after effects. And it will be a couple of weeks uh, before we pick this up again. Originally, Amy and I were uh, attending a family wedding next weekend, and since Amy cannot travel now, we canceled that, but I'm still going to take a break next weekend. Uh, we'll continue this series, Lord willing, on November 19th. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been following Noah, and Noah lived in a world filled with violence and uh, evil, sin. Uh, because every human thought, God said, was evil, uh, he judged the world with a flood. By grace, Noah and his family was saved. In obedience to God, he built an ark, escaped the flood with his wife, his three sons, their wives, and representatives, species of animals. All life outside the ark was destroyed. And that really pictures the salvation story that God offers to all of us. Because the great day of judgment is coming. And you will face it when you die or when Jesus returns. And the only escape is through Jesus. He is the ark of safety. And all who are in Christ will not face judgment. On the cross, Jesus suffered God's wrath against sin, giving new life to all who believe. And many of you, are experiencing that new life, the joy of sin that's forgiven, the restedness of not trying to, having to earn God's favor, uh, having a purpose for your life and hope that lasts forever. Now, as we look at what happened to Noah after the flood, it shows how those who know Jesus still experience sin and failure, that that's a reality. And to help us understand the scripture passage, I've fabricated a little story, and I apologize in advance for it, and I want you to maybe see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. On his way home from the salt mines, Jack stopped to get buzzed. Two hours later, he was pretty sideways, put on some beer goggles, and went to a house for Netflix and chill, and took the walk of shame the next morning. Probably most of you have no idea what I just said. Your children, maybe your grandchildren, could figure it out. For those of you who have no idea, I'll translate. <laughs> After work, Jack went to a bar, had too many beers, went home with a stranger, had sex, and left the next day in the same clothes he was wearing the night before. Now, I give you that example that I made up to prepare you for this Bible story that hints at things without stating exactly what happened. The drama begins with a list of characters. So we pick up where we left off last week, chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, whenever Scripture includes a detail, it's important. There's a reason. Curiously, 
Out of Noah's 16 grandsons, only one is mentioned here. In fact, the next chapter lists all the descendants, but here only one grandson is named. Shem had five sons. Why aren't they mentioned? Japheth had seven sons. Why aren't they mentioned? Ham had four sons, and only the youngest is mentioned. Why? Out of 16 grandsons, why Canaan? Well, this detail tells us to pay attention, that there's something going on here beneath the surface. Next verse. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. So these three sons of Noah and their wives had the God-given instruction, as we saw last week, to multiply and fill the earth. With the rest of humanity wiped out, these three couples were responsible to restart the human family. Noah and his wife were a bit too old for that, if you'll recall. So, next verse. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now remember, Noah had just invested a good portion of his life in the construction business. That He had been building an ark. And now he could return to his real profession, which apparently was agriculture, growing grapes. Now vineyards, of course, don't grow overnight. So years have passed here. And the next thing we know, Noah has made wine and he's gotten inebriated. And we did not see that coming. Noah, the preacher of righteousness, is drunk and naked. Some want to excuse Noah by saying, well, he didn't know the effects of fermented grape juice, or that fermentation did not start until after the flood, and so this was an accident. And I say this is ridiculous. The text is very careful to tell us that he knew about vineyards and that he was intentional about making the wine, and then he drank too much. Now, now let me make it clear that drunkenness is always wrong. And it's a sin for uh, several biblical reasons. You are not in control. Uh, you make bad decisions. You're a danger to yourself and others. Now, while drunkenness is always wrong, drinking is not wrong for all people at all times. Uh, let me get seven times when it is wrong. Uh, while driving, uh, if you're underage, which for most of you is not a problem. Uh, <laughs> drinking to excess. Uh, if you have a spiritual conviction against it, it's wrong. If you're addicted, it's wrong. If it's how you cope with life, it's wrong. If it offends those around you, it's wrong. But the Bible does not condemn the responsible use of alcohol. It condemns gluttony, but it doesn't make food a sin. It condemns gossiping, but that doesn't make talking a sin. It condemns immorality, but that doesn't make sex a sin. But drunkenness is sin, and it left Noah naked and vulnerable. But he's naked in his own tent. Do you ever wonder about that? I mean, what's the problem? It's like saying, he took a shower and he was naked. <laughs> it's like, what's the big deal? How could there be anything wrong with that? Well, the wording here indicates that something sexual was happening. Or it was about to happen to Noah. So, verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Now, the first question you should ask is, why do we need to be reminded again of the name of one of Ham's sons? That's weird. How is that relevant? And, and what did Ham do? It says he saw and then told. 
Now, this could mean that he was literally lusting after his own father, or it could mean that he was engaged in some sexual act with his father or even his mother, and say, well, how can you suggest that? Well, look at Leviticus 18. It says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. It is your father's nakedness. Or Leviticus 20. And if a man shall take his sister and see her nakedness and she see his nakedness, it is a wicked thing. He shall bear his iniquity. See, the point is that the Bible uses this phrase, uncover nakedness or seeing nakedness, to talk about illicit sexual relations, particularly incest. And, and last I knew, even our bizarre culture frowns on incest. Last I knew. Hebrew scholar Gary Schnitzer says that whatever the sin was, voyeurism, homosexuality, incest, it was sexual in nature. So whatever Ham did, or whatever he witnessed, there, there are many things he could have done to help, none of which he did. Instead, he just told his brothers. And here's what they did, verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. So Ham did not protect his vulnerable father, but disrespected him. And then he chose to gossip about Noah rather than safeguard his dignity. Shem and Japheth did the proper thing and showed respect. They took great care to protect their father in his state of vulnerability. But there's more happening here than appears just on the surface. As we continue, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Now notice the clues. There are a lot of them. Noah came out of his drunken stupor and realized something was done to him. He wasn't told. He knew it. And so he curses Canaan, his grandson? Why not curse Ham? Seems that Ham, the, the, you read the story on the surface, Ham is identified as the offender. What's Canaan got to do with this? Well, I believe it's because Canaan was the one who took advantage of his drunken grandfather in some way. Because you notice how Noah identifies the culprit? He calls him his youngest son. Noah's youngest son is not Ham. It's Japheth. Noah's sons are always listed, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So why is this so confusing? Now, also, understand that the Hebrew word bene not only can mean son, it can mean grandson, great-grandson, relative, child, and so this could be translated, Noah knew what his youngest grandson had done to him. That's Canaan. Next chapter, chapter 10, verse 6, gives the birth order of Ham's sons, and Canaan is last. He's the youngest. So here's what probably happened. I'm not going to stake my life on it, but I've been studying Hebrew scriptures for a few years. Uh, this is what I believe happened. That uh, Ham discovered that his youngest son, Canaan, was taking advantage of a drunken Noah, or at least disrespecting Noah's nakedness. But instead of protecting his father or rebuking his son, Ham joked about it to his brothers. They properly went in and covered up the mess. And then when Noah got sober, he cursed his youngest grandson for violating him. 
You might ask, well, why didn't the Bible make this clearer? Remember how at least some of you could figure out what was going on with the beer goggles and the Netflix and chill and the walk of shame? This is similar. The original audience of this story understood. They knew that they could fill in the blanks. Now, with that in mind, here are a few connections I want to make from this story, some applications. First of all, that not one of us is beyond failing. Not one of us. Remember how the story rushed past all the time it would take to plant a vineyard, to grow grapes, to make wine, and let it ferment? This would have taken years. But the story reads like Noah got off the ark, worshipped God, and got drunk. That's how it reads. There's a point being made. Now, I want you to notice the similarities between this and the fall when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Just look, look at the similarities. Adam and Eve, God planted a garden. Noah planted a vineyard. Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate it. Noah drank wine and got drunk. Adam and Eve knew they were naked. Noah was naked in his tent. Adam and Eve made clothing for themselves. Noah was covered in his nakedness. Adam and Eve's eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Noah awoke and knew what his son had done. Adam and Eve were cursed by God for their sin. Noah cursed Canaan. See, it's a very similarly lined up story in that way. And what is being emphasized here is that even though God wiped out all the bad influences and conditions, sin was in the heart of every human. Oh, there was a flood that wiped out so much. But where was sin located? In the heart, in the human heart. Let me affirm for you that you will not escape the evil effects of this world by hiding or by surrounding yourself with only Christians. No. I, I, parents will put their kids in Christian school or move to a better neighborhood or homeschool their kids or change churches for a better youth group to protect their kids, but are then shocked when the kids still rebel. The trouble is that it's in here, not out there as much. It's, it's in here. And some people get divorced to escape bad influences and arguments and emotional hurt. And, and, I, and I've heard them say, well, this time I'm going to marry a Christian and all will be well. Well, guess what? The problem with you're still a part of it. <laughs> and you're taking all that garbage into the next relationship. And far too many people just jump right into another relationship. And no matter what the terms of your breakup or reasons for it, the healing and the recovery process should take years because divorce is emotional violence. Don't ignore your own vulnerability, your own culpability for sin. And don't be shocked that the most righteous among us can fail. Noah's failure reminds us that no one is immune from the darkest sin. And past godliness does not guarantee present holiness. And the scripture says repeatedly, if you think you stand, watch out so that you don't fall. Well, that's the first aspect, that not one of us is beyond failing. The second one is that some sins open the door to others. Drunkenness is one of those. Lowering your inhibitions encourages you to say things that you shouldn't say, to do things you shouldn't do. And the use of alcohol to gain an advantage over others is an actually an ancient practice. Notice the prophet Habakkuk. How terrible for you who get your neighbors drunk so you can gaze on their naked bodies. So this has been going on a while. The incident with Noah is the 
first recorded drunkenness we have in Scripture. The second comes ten chapters later, when Lot and his daughters escape the destruction of Sodom, and they hide out in a cave, and the daughters want to preserve the family line, so they get their father drunk two nights in a row so that they can have sex with him in a drunken stupor. So we have incest and violation and rape that result from inebriation. Now, when we're in Christ, our sins are forgiven and our eternal salvation is not lost, but our sinful behaviors can lead to devastating consequences. And wherever drunkenness is, other sins can quickly follow. So they open the door to others. Third, your sin can impact future generations. See, the curse of Noah extends beyond Canaan to the generations that follow. Canaan, his grandson, the father of the Canaanites, And the Canaanites were absorbed with sexual sin. Their wickedness included sacrificing children to their gods. They were a perpetual enemy and a trouble for God's people. Constant opposition. Now, was their entire nation unavoidably condemned to repeat these sins? No. But it was a rampant part of their culture, much as such things seem to be a rampant part of American culture. A cycle of sex and violence. And this story is included to let us know where all that trouble with the Canaanites started. It started back here with something that Canaan apparently did to his grandfather. You see, there's something about sexual sin and violence that has a lingering effect. London Institute of Child Health said abused children who came from families where violence was common or where there was sexual abuse were more than three times as likely to become abusers themselves. See, if you've been a victim, please know that you are not condemned to repeat it. The cycle can be broken. You do not have to replicate the sins done to you. There is hope in Christ. And so, another application is that love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, whatever happened inside that tent, Ham only spread the news. What is your reaction when you hear about or you witness somebody else's failure? Let me tell you a bad thing about me. I could share at least one every week, but here's just one. Once in a while. I once saw a headline about a religious leader that I had worked with and did not respect. And uh, the headline said that he had been caught doing something wrong. And that, that was it, just that headline. And, and, I, and I tell you, honestly, I had a smug reaction. I knew he was no good. And now everyone will know he's a fake, just as I suspected he was. That was my honest reaction. Moments later... I discovered that it was April 1st. And this was a parody headline. And I was shocked at how easily I could delight in the failure of another person. Do you ever do that? How anxious are you to spread the juicy news? How quickly do you share the failures of others? Love doesn't do that, does it? As those created in God's image, we respect each other, treat one another with dignity. Even a drunken, naked old man is to be valued. How tempting it is for us to look down on the drunks and the perverts. But gossip is a characteristic of ungodliness. And love, Scripture says, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. That's what love does. 
And love doesn't take advantage of somebody in a vulnerable position. Through the years I have confronted people I have found who are cruising divorce groups and grief classes and AA meetings on the prowl for someone at their weakest point. Disrespecting this vulnerable drunken man also dishonored God. So I I want you to think, who around you is defenseless? Who is exposed? Who is emotionally fragile? Who needs help? Rather than gossiping about them at their point of weakness, instead of ridiculing them or taking advantage of them, who needs you to help them in their fallen condition? That's what love does. Well, this strange incident points us to Jesus, as every Bible story should. See, the solution to our fallenness and failure is the good news of Jesus. It's not political referendums or destruction or separation. It's the gospel. That God's love is so great that he made a way of forgiveness for our drunkenness, our gossip, our disrespect, our heart that delights in evil, our sexual sin and the cycle of abuse. He gives us a grace greater than all our sin. The world around us is filled with the wreckage of sin. And what we must avoid is acting as if we're better than everyone else. What we must avoid is pointing fingers and leveling judgment against those who are living out their sin nature. What we must avoid is shutting ourselves away from all people whose lives are a mess. Instead, those of us who know Jesus should be ready and willing to minister to anyone God puts in our path, to shine the light of Christ to into a dark world. Maybe God wants you to be comforting the grieving, to counsel the unwed mother, to feed the hungry, to mentor the young, to assist those who are poor, in need, the elderly, those to, to be with the oppressed, to, to, to befriend the lonely, to protect the vulnerable. Maybe God's calling you to do something. Because no matter how flawed they might be, you treat them with dignity and share with them the good news of Jesus. Paul Knight, the pastor from North Dakota, was in Ethiopia. See, his family sponsored a child there through Compassion International, as I know that many of you do as well. And uh, Paul wanted to bring gifts to this 10-year-old girl and her mother, who was a single mom who lived and worked in a one-room house that was also serving as the local bar. During Paul's visit, the place started to fill up with these rowdy men, And suddenly, Paul's translator took him by the arm and said, we have to go now. And Paul said, well, I'm not ready to leave. I'm going to spend some more time with with my sponsor child. The crowd got louder and more rowdy, and his guide said, it's not safe. You must leave now. Uh, Paul pointed to the child, and he said, but what about my little girl? This is her home, the guide said. But will she be safe? Paul asked. It's not really safe, but this is her home, the guide said. Paul was indignant. What does that mean? It's not really safe. Most likely, it means everything you think it means, the guide said. Paul fought back tears. He said, what can she do? Gently grabbing him by the arm, the guide said, we teach the girls to do this. Scream and run to the church. And when you get to the church, you will find love and safety. The church will shelter you. So when they feel threatened and vulnerable, 
they run to the church. What a terrible existence for a child. But our Savior gives us this invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so today I point you to the place of safety. Run to Jesus. As God's people, do whatever is in your power to help the vulnerable in your world, those God places in your path, your circle of influence. And let me remind you again that the ultimate answer for every helpless, exposed, defenseless person is to run to Jesus. The source of supreme strength in your time of weakness is Jesus. Run to him. Would you stand with me? Let me pray. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.